0: Right. if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to just go straight into 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, Peter, the ever concrete, ever uh, detailed person, uh, just straight up exactly what it is. No frills, no gimmicks. He just spits it out there. So we're just going to start off 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Just a concise little sense of what is it that God asks of us. He's continuing to summarize part of this book of 1 Peter and does that here such that we are going to understand from the text today that we imitate Jesus. Our job in imitating Him is to both play our part and to stay razor sharp, focused on our mission, uh, just like Jesus was. Uh, let's read. I'll start in verse 1 of chapter 4. Uh, follow along if you have your Bibles. First Peter 4, 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves in the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passion and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Verse 4. With respect to this they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that through that though judged in the flesh the way people are they might live in the spirit the way God does verse 7 the end of all things is at hand therefore be self-controlled Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Finally, verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Two things. Uh, be like-minded. Imitate Jesus. By being focused on our mission and by playing our part. You know, the first part here in in. Peter 4, uh, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with this same attitude. And we've got to see that this is God's good way for us. And it's for our good. And it frees us. God's good way frees us to take hold of his good will now, which is good for us and for the glory of God. And his good way frees us to, then to sink our teeth into and to hold tightly to our eternal inheritance. One of the trends that we see in Peter is is Peter's constantly drawing these lines. This is the world's way. Don't do that. Here's the way that I instruct. Here's Jesus' example. Here's the way that you are to follow. Yielding to authority has been all over the text so far in 1 Peter. And so it's a perfect example of Peter saying, here's the world's way, right? Culture belittles, mocks, criticizes Uh, delights in the failures of authority figures. Peter says, this is what culture does. Don't do it that way. Instead, yield to your authority figures out of respect for God. He almost draws a picture of, imagine what it would be like if all of the local politicians who work downtown were just inundated with letters from Christians saying, hey, just want to know we're grateful for your public service. We are grateful for the work that you do advocating for good. We're praying for you. We're praying God's favor. Imagine if ever every employer was inundated with periodic emails from Christian employees saying, just want to know we're grateful for the leadership you provide to this country company. We're grateful for the work that you do. We're grateful and we're behind you and we pray for you daily. I, I, I imagine what that would look like. Wouldn't that be a force to be reckoned with for our authority figures who are used to being belittled and criticized in culture? And wow, if Christians stood in stark contrast to that, what would that be like for culture, for leaders, for people seeing Christ in Jesus' people? Constantly drawing this line. Here's the world's way, here's your way. And he starts off with verse 1 saying, arm yourselves with the same mindset that Jesus did. The same mindset that Jesus did. Arm yourselves. It's a military term. So, uh, we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to arm ourselves, especially as we think about preparing for uh, suffering, and how do we have the same attitude, the same mindset that Jesus did? Again, we're going to see a stark contrast between the world's ways and and Jesus' example, between the world's ways and Peter's instruction. Here, right as we think about just life in general, what does culture say? Get as much as you can for as long as you can. Get whatever you can because this is all there is, right? It's all about make the most of the day because there is no tomorrow apart from God, right? And so what does Peter say? Peter says, scrap all that. This isn't about if you're a, an outdoors person just living for the next adventure. If you're a food person, not this isn't just about traveling the world, having as much good food as you possibly can. Can he's saying no 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 life is not a menu to be sampled he's saying life is a battle to be won paul uses the word race life is a race to be run well to be found faithful to win how do we arm ourselves for spiritual battle turn to ephesians 6 if you have your bibles Uh, in first corinthians we're reminded that the weapons of the christian life are spiritual weapons because we have a spiritual enemy right we're reminded that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Some of us think our battle is with our neighbor, with a family member, with an employer, with an employee, with a co-worker. We're reminded that our battle is not with those people. It may involve them, but ultimately, our battle is not with flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, therefore take up the whole armor of God. And, and so Paul identifies the right enemy. And so how, how do we how do we arm ourselves? First of all, we've got to have the right enemy in focus. And so if right now when I say enemy, you're thinking a neighbor and a, co- a co-worker, a family member, or what once was a friend— That's not your enemy. They may be part of the circumstance, uh, but it's ultimately a spiritual uh, battle. And a spiritual battle requires spiritual tools or we will experience spiritual defeat. And so Ephesians 6 goes on and he talks about what are some of those in the whole armor of God. Some of you are familiar with this text that says uh, stand firm. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. A life well lived our feet having been shod or wearing, the readiness given by the gospel of peace, uh, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation. The idea is if we don't put on the armor daily, if our tools are not sharp, if we are not practiced with them, familiar with them, being employed regularly, used daily, that it's like going into battle naked with no weapons, no armor, and then wondering why we keep failing wondering why we're not making the progress that we want to make, wondering why we're not seeing the power of God. And So if you go into battle with no weapons, with no defense, with no tools, you can't be surprised that you continue to fail, to not see progress, and to not see the power of the Lord. We need spiritual tools for a spiritual battle, or we will experience spiritual defeat. Now, God's way, this example that we're imitating in Christ, being armed with the same mindset where Jesus puts his mission over his comfort, over his safety, over his security, and even over what's fair. Uh, when we imitate that mindset, when we arm ourselves with that like-mindedness, it sets us free to enjoy God's will now. Let's read verse uh, the rest of first 1 and the, then first 2 from 1 Peter 4. He says this, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. In other words, well, first of all, what he's not saying is that if you suffer in any way for doing what's right, you have now ceased from sin and you will never be tempted again, will never fall again, and will never sin again. Okay, so we know that 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 is not the case. What is he saying? When we suffer for doing right, when you are mocked at work for following the rules, when you get passed over for opportunities that people who don't behave ethically, who treat people terribly, who live immorally, when they get opportunities and you don't, when you suffer for doing what is right, it marks and defines and affirms that you are on the right path as a culture, we're copers, right? As a culture, we run away from difficulty as fast as we possibly can. If you Google the information about antidepressants and alcohol abuse and illicit drug use, it's staggering the percentage of the general population that is just enslaved to some of these devices trying to ignore reality, trying to run Uh, from difficulty. And there's a host of other reasons, but in some way, shape, or form, dealing with life as it stands in reality is too difficult. And here, Jesus is calling us into difficulty. Peter's words are calling us into difficulty. And so we see that when we then suffer difficulty, it is this huge spotlight and saying, oh, that person's on the right path. It makes me think of coaching uh, a t-ball and in t-ball, you have a pitcher, and a pitcher is one of the most important positions. They don't get to throw the ball because they couldn't possibly throw it straight enough or far enough uh, to be a strike, but they stand there, and since the kids can't hit the ball very far, 80% of the balls come to the pitcher. And so you know what's really great is when your pitcher allows a ball to roll right past him or her because he understands that this is his position, and there's someone else over there that has a position, and there's someone else over there that has a position. Instead of just running to it... Stays in his spot. Knows his role. You say, ah, he's got it. He understands that we're a team. It's not all about him. There's a team. He gets it. Peter says that when you see someone suffer for doing righteousness, they get it. They're on the right path. And it says it allows us to take hold of God's good will. That is good for the glory of God and that is good for our lives. It unshackles us from the insatiable pursuit of more stuff right it unshackles us from the insatiable pursuit of more stuff getting as much as we can out of life um, i don't know if any of you have ever been to a sporting event where uh, usually it's at a basketball game where they'll put dollar bills all over the basketball court and then one lucky contest or contestant gets to come down and gets 30 seconds or 60 seconds to pick up as much as they possibly can and so it is a really fun game But it is a really terrible way to live our life. And many of us are living our lives 30 seconds, 60 seconds, go. Grab as much as you can. And so when we see someone who is suffering for doing right, we say, oh, they get it. They get it. They've been able to set aside the expectations of the world. They've been able to set aside, make life happy and comfortable and easy. They get it. That bodes well for enjoying God's will. That bodes well for people seeing Christ in us. Because when Christians look more like culture than like Christ. Nobody sees Christ. God's way sets us free to take hold of His good will and it sets us free to take hold of His eternal uh, inheritance. Now, well, let me read the text and then I'll, and then I'll work backwards. Uh, verses 4 and 5. He says, With, Oh, verse, verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, goes on and on and on. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you or they attack you or they slander you or they say poor things about you or they exclude you. Verse 5, but they will have to give an account to him who has preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Many think that, that Peter's audience didn't need encouragement to keep going just because it was difficult. They needed encouragement to keep going because they were looking around and seeing neighbors who did not worship God and seemed to be getting all the benefits. They were looking around and seeing friends, uh, neighbors, people around them who lived immoral lives and it never seemed to catch up with them. It never seemed to reap bad things in their life. And so many believe that Peter's audience needed to be encouraged because they were close, in some cases, giving up. And so he says, the time has passed. You lived that way. Do you remember what it was like? It was terrible. Do you remember being enslaved to sin where you couldn't get out of it? Do you remember that strain on your life that distorted all of your relationships? That distorted all that was good? Do you remember what that was like? He says, time has passed. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to that. Look forward. And he says, isn't this why the gospel was preached? Because one day we will all stand before the Lord. One day we will all stand and be judged. And so as Peter's audience is looking around and saying, wait a second, I do my work as unto the Lord, and my knucklehead co-worker got the promotion who cheats and lies and steals every way, shape, or form. Peter says, maybe to you retirees, who have devoted your lives to the Lord, and you look around and you see friends who haven't, and they seem to be the ones going on all the fun trips. They seem to be the ones smiling in all the pictures. Maybe you've devoted yourself to trying to be a mother, trying to be a father, trying to be a parent, point your kids towards Jesus. Relationships are just strained right now, and you look at, at other families, and you know that they have sold themselves to their work for the sake of their family. You know that there hasn't been a day in their life where they've tried to point a kid Jesus and somehow uh, their family just seems to have it all right everyone seems happily married the grandkids are just like multiplying exponentially uh, they just can't keep up it seems like so much good things and you think man what is all this for it doesn't seem like it's paying off Peter reminds his audience everyone will have to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment and he says even verse 6 even those who have died even your Christian brothers and sisters who have died and really never saw an end to their ailments, never saw a resolution to some of their relationships, never saw that great promotion or that uh, build the house on a hill moment, or got to take that special trip. Even those that that died, they are raised in the spirit to live with the Lord forever. He looks at his audience and says, he looks at his audience and he says, "You don't get it. You can't lose. You don't get it. You've already won. Don't." Turn back to that. Let's pick it up in in verse uh, 7 where he kind of transitions here from saying, imitate Jesus by staying focused on your mission, understanding that the end is near, understanding you will all have to give an account. It kind of shifts focus here and says, now we imitate Jesus by playing our part. Understanding that the end is coming causes us to play our part today. Uh, Let's read verse 7. Peter says this, 7a he says therefore or the end of all things is near or the end of all things is at hand and he's not just telling them this it's not just matter of fact it's not like you know the weather tomorrow is supposed to be 47 degrees and it's supposed to rain Uh, this isn't just something for them to know it's supposed to cause a sense of urgency today right being prepared for tomorrow means living right today if you're a young person and you're thinking you might want to be married one day Being prepared to be married means living a certain way today. If you're working towards a career or towards a direction, being prepared for that career one day, moving towards that means applying yourself to school or to internships or to something today. You see, our understanding of tomorrow, our focus on the future is supposed to yield a spiritual urgency and attentiveness and a sobriety uh, today. Romans 13 adds to this uh, understanding. Romans 13, verses 11 through 12, uh, give us more instruction on how do we live with urgency? How do we live with the end in mind? Um, verse 11 and 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, uh, in a spiritual sense, to wake from spiritual slumber, for salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, okay, so salvation is near now, the Lord's return is near now, the end is near, and we understand that as Jesus rose from the dead, it really marks the beginning of the last days, it says the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then, here's how we live with urgency and readiness, in light of the end, So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Being ready for tomorrow means living right today. Being ready to meet the Lord means living right today. Um, Two things from the last uh, five, six verses of this text, Uh, when we... Follow the Lord's way, His way sets us free to show His glory in the midst of our messy lives, and His way sets us free to show His power in the midst of our own powerlessness. So if you feel like life is messy, that's normal. God's way sets us free to show His glory in the midst of our messiness. If you feel powerless, that's normal. God's way sets us free to show His power in the midst of our powerlessness. Uh, let's read 7 and 8 together. 1 Peter 4, 7 and 8. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, and here's what it looks like, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It's an interesting verse. Love covers a multitude of sins. I don't know if... That's something that, that some of you have looked at before, but at first reading, it, it kind of makes me think, huh, so if I'm a jerk to my kids, an inattentive husband, does that mean that if I buy someone lunch, that act of love covers a multitude of my sins? Like, does it just kind of tilt the scale and bring me back to balance? Are there some acts of love that are weighted heavier, so I could just do two or three of those, and then that would offset all of the uh, jerkishness, um, if you will. Uh, No. Love covers a multitude of sins. Whose sin? Uh, I think there's a number of thoughtful points that people have made that make a case uh, that the love of God's people, the love of God burning hot in me, has the power to cover over a multitude of other people's sins such that it is useful for helping them see Christ, such that it is useful for helping them get over some of their own sin and seeing Christ, such that it is useful for breaking down barriers in their life and helping them see Christ. Love covers a multitude of sins. Be alert, be sober for the sake of your prayers? What is the truest indicator that we are living ready for the Lord's return? What is the truest indicator that we are ready for the Lord's return? Do we love well? Matthew 24, 12 speaks to this. This is kind of a neat passage. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Uh, it's one worth just pausing on for us for a minute. Matthew twenty-four twelve. it's about that far through your Bible. Uh, speaking of the last days, speaking of the end times, speaking of coming returns, speaking of coming judgment, speaking of standing firm till the end, speaking of what do we do as God's people as this day draws near. Um, pick it up in verse 10. He says, and then many, talking about these last days, and then many will fall away, and they will betray one another, and they will hate one another, and many false prophets will arise, and they will lead many astray. In other words, no matter who's in the governor's mansion, no matter who's in the White House, no matter which political party holds office, the world is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until Jesus returns. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. He says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved how do we How do we put this together as god's people as in as lawlessness increases the love of many will grow cold. What is the truest? sign that we are ready for Jesus' return? What is the truest sign that we are living today preparing for our eternal tomorrow? As we see love growing cold around us. As you see love growing cold in relationships, in family members, at work, at school, in the different spheres that you find ourselves. Do you step in With the love of God, or do you retreat and step back, protect yourself, put walls up, stay distant? When you see love growing cold, be reminded that we're living in the end of days, and Jesus' instruction to us, Peter' instruction to us here is to step into that coldness, step into that vacuum so that people understand that love is not dead, that in Jesus there is hope, and it leads to life. God's people retreat, if we retreat from difficulty, if we re- retreat every time our toes get stepped on, if we retreat every time we sense and see love growing cold, whether it be at church, whether it be at work, whether it be in your community, whether it be with your family members, we have effectively abandoned our purpose, abandoned our mission, and we have ceased to imitate Jesus. Jesus calls us to be salt in the world, right? He calls us to be light in darkness, not to hide from, not to run from, not to avoid the darkness, right? Jesus goes into the religious leaders. He goes in to the Pharisees, to the tax collectors, to the prostitute home and have dinner. He has not run away from them. He runs to them. What does it look like to be ready for Jesus' return? What does it look like to live in light of who we are as people who imitate Christ? See coldness. See love growing cold and to step in to that vacuum. To understand that that's not a deterrent It's not a closed door. That's an invitation from the Lord. And and you just got to know that if you're going to walk through that door, people are going to try to slam it shut on you. You're not going to be all the way through it and people are going to be slamming it closed on your foot. You ever get out of a car and and keep your finger in the door and someone slams it, right? You remember doing that? That hurts. You remember what you said? Don't raise your hand and be honest. If you're going to see love growing cold and step into it, Expect that's going to be difficult. Expect that your response or your efforts are not going to be returned right away. Expect that people aren't going to be excited to see you there. Expect that you're going to get opposition and criticism, even from maybe other Christ followers. You see love growing cold. That's not a closed door. That's not a deterrent. That's not a stay away. That's not a stop sign. Step in to that. Step in to be light in darkness. God's way sets us free to show His glory in the midst of our messy lives. We tend to think that our messy lives preclude His glory, that our messy lives uh, blunt our ability to show His glory. Our messy lives are the context for showing His glory. Finally, God's way sets us free to show His power Peter's going to talk just a minute here about using our gifts, um, but not using our gifts in ways that cause people to say, look at this person or look at that person. He's going to talk about using uh, our spiritual gifts. He's going to divide them into two categories, uh, speaking gifts and serving gifts. And he says if you're a person with a speaking gift, speak the words of the Lord. Don't speak your words. If you have a serving gift, serve in the strength the Lord supplies, not in your own strength. Uh, Let's read the rest of our text this morning. Nine, ten, eleven. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. By the way, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that all of us who are in Christ have received a gift from the Lord, a manifestation of the Spirit. The text says, for the common good, for the good of each other. It's not to uh, put in our belt or put, make a patch and put it on our shirt and say, check that out. That's a good one, isn't it? That's a special one. Uh, it's for the common good. And there's a stewarding there, right? It's not just something that we have that we get to look at and make nice and shine. It's a responsibility to use such that we understand that when we're not using it we're being poor stewards of God's gift and as a result the body is weak. As each has received a gift, he says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks speak as one who speaks oracles of God God's word, God's instruction, God's wisdom, not ours, not mine. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. How do you know if you're serving in your strength or the Lord's strength? My guess is if you're serving in your strength, life perpetually feels like you have 18 too many things on your plate. My guess is if you're serving in your own strength, you've signed up for something that you feel comfortable doing, and you've said, God, I'll do this, this, and this, and this, but there's no way I'll do this, this, and this. There's no way I'll serve, care for, love this person, that person. Anything over here, God's fair game, everything over there is off limits. I suspect if you're serving in your own strength, you put some fences up, you put some barriers up about where you'll allow the Lord to send you and where you won't. Uh, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 are a couple places you can go to read more about what the spiritual gifts are. Uh, but from 1 Corinthians 12, I just want us to understand that even more than what those are, the point is is that if you're a follower of Christ, you have one. And, and the idea then is that, that we would say yes. It was so timely to have Gabe and Kim on stage uh, this morning because we expect that in this venture, God's going to use their spiritual gifts to further that ministry and accomplish his kingdom purposes. But do you see all of the uncertainty around their next steps? Do you see all of possibly the fear surrounding the next steps of taking a young child overseas? What kind of physicians will there be? What kind of attentiveness and will they have if they need medical help, if they need educational help, if they need nutritional help? What resources will be available to You see all of the questions that are unanswered. Part of using our gifts as unto the Lord so that he gets the glory is stepping into situations where we don't have all the answers. And so sometimes God just shows us a step and he says walk. And we're like, no, no, no. You show me ten steps and then I'll take one. God doesn't work that way. Right? He sees ten. He says take one. We usually can't see any. Okay? And so part of it is stepping forward. And, and I hope you heard one of the things they said. They've been encouraged by people that know them to take this step. God's voice has been affirmed by people who previously have been opposed to their missionary efforts who have said, this seems right. So it's not reckless, right? It's thoughtful, it's spirit led, but it's terrifying. I want to end with with two passages: Isaiah six and Psalms one thirty-eight. Uh, two passages that have just been kind of significant to me this week: uh, Isaiah six and Psalms one thirty-eight. In Isaiah six, he find Isaiah finds himself be- before the throne of God, and he looks around and he sees angels and they're singing, "Holy, holy, holy!" And the Lord speaks, and it says, "The ground shakes." It says, the room fills with smoke. And so Isaiah is no dummy. Uh, In verse 5, he says, uh uh-oh, this is what he says. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah looks around and says, there is just one thing that doesn't fit here, me. He has seen the Lord, and he understands instantly, huge distance between him and where the Lord is. And he's like, I'm in trouble. I don't belong at this table. Woe is me. And an angel comes to him and an angel ministers to him in the verses thereafter and basically says, "Uh, Isaiah, your sin has been taken care of. Just a few minutes or just a few verses later, he hears the voice of the Lord uh, saying this. Let me read verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? So the Lord says, i got a project. I need somebody. Who will go for us? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah in verse 8 says, Here I am. Just says, send me. So he's been in the presence of the Lord and trembled. But he saw the Lord. When we see the Lord... We're compelled to take a step to him, not a step back. Because he understands in an instant the love for the Lord, the love the Lord has for his life. Such that in just three verses later, he goes from trembling to saying, here I am, send me. You see, when we see him and when we see his work, our response is not, I can't. Our response is not, I've never done that before. Our response is not, well, what about all these details? Here I am. Send me. From Psalms 138, uh, another great chapter. David spends most of the chapter saying, God, you're so great, and I'm such a loser. Um, I was low, and you brought me high. I was weak and powerless, and you showed up, and your power strengthened me. I was in trouble, and you saved me. Uh, Psalms 138, verse 8, the Lord the end of this chapter, he says, the Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. He says, your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. I love the first line. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. We've got spiritual gifts. We have a sense of what Jesus' mission was and that He um, put His comfort and His safety and even what was fair, Second, he made all that second. His mission was first. Jesus played his part, even though it was a difficult part to play, and we're commanded to imitate him and to play our part, even though for some of us, our parts seem far too heavy, far beyond us, far more than we're capable of. And Jesus says, yeah, that's exactly right. That's kind of how I designed it. It's kind of what I modeled to you. Uh, From Isaiah 6, just say, here I am. Send me. This week. Just say, here I am, send me. On your way to work, say, Lord, here I am, send me. I don't know what's coming. Here I am, send me. Uh, maybe you're having family over this week. Maybe uh, you have a conversation with a neighbor or coworker. Here I am, send me. And then from Psalms 138, that we might do that confidently, not because we can manage it, not because we're pretty sure we can navigate it, not because we've done it before so we can do it again, but from Psalms 138, Verse 8, David says, I know that the Lord will bring about his purposes for me, through me. His purposes he will secure for himself. Do you believe that God can do that in your life? Or do you think that your life is such a mess that the creator of the universe can't use you? Or do you think that you're so not gifted that you just mess everything up, that you botch it so bad that the creator of the universe can't do his good will through you? From Isaiah, here I am, send me. From Psalms 138, I am sure that the Lord will fulfill His good purposes in me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that every time we are instructed to do what seems beyond us, every time, Lord, that we are pushed out of our comfort zones, every time we get the sense that what you ask and what you expect is not something we can do in our own or that we are reminded that it's not by our power that the gifts that you've given to us are not to be even used in our own strength and that the gifts to begin with weren't ours they were entrusted to our care that you provided them for your work and so may our confidence in who you are grow Uh, may our confidence in our identity as your sons and your daughters may that grow such that we have the confidence to say here I am, send me, I know that you're going to do your goodwill in and through my life, even if right now it is a mess, even if right now I feel absolutely powerless, that that is ideal, that when we're messy, you are seen as worthy, that when we are powerless, you are seen as all-powerful, and ultimately that it's about you being seen, not us. And so, Lord, make us content with that, because we want to be seen and we want to be recognized. Lord, give us a sense today that the end is near. Give us a sense today that Jesus is returning soon. Give us a sense today, Lord, that we don't have to look around and and wish we had what others had. Lord, judgment is coming. Lord, and rather than wishing ill for others, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would break for others. Lord, that we would run to them, not separate ourselves from them. That we would run near the darkness, that we wouldn't be light that retreats from the darkness. But open our eyes even this week to where love has grown cold and prick our hearts, push us forwards, remind us of our calling. it is for such a time as this that we were made. in Jesus name we pray. Amen.